I'm Suzanne Lynch, and you're listening to a special bonus episode of EU Confidential, brought to you by our health team. I'll be back with our regular episode on Thursday. See you then. Today's episode is presented by Gilead. Gilead is committed to delivering innovative therapies that have the potential to address unmet needs in HIV treatment and prevention, and are actively pursuing research that could, one day, lead to a cure. Together, we can end the epidemic for everyone, everywhere. The call came when James was at work. His partner had been phoned by a relative who'd seen the article and couldn't quite believe it. Perhaps it was a different man with the same name. But it wasn't. James's name, photo, address and place of work were on a news website, plastered beneath the accusation that he was being charged with infecting his former partner with HIV. His life would never be the same again. Now his family, his friends, his colleagues, his neighbours would all know that he was HIV positive and accused of a crime. I just left everything that I was doing and went straight back home. Um, I think from that time, everything just kind of deteriorated. And uh, you think about anything and everything, you know, you think, okay, fine, if, if they just want me to admit that that's what I did and I just go to jail and get it done or I, whatever it means to me to get out of all this, then... You know, because it's one thing after another. Well, there's this police case, there's this newspaper thing coming, and you just don't know. You, it's, it's just like rocks falling on your head. In many countries, including England and Wales, if you know you are HIV positive and transmit the virus to your partner, you can go to jail if you didn't tell your partner about your status and weren't on HIV treatment or didn't use a condom. Today, we're going to tell you the story of James, a man who has experienced the negative effects of the law in England. But the fact is, his story could be anywhere in Europe. In Western and Central Europe, 21 countries have applied their general laws to HIV criminalisation cases, with France having the most reported cases in the EU. In the previous EU Confidential In Focus podcast, Sarah Tassia Ben Sharif told you about the ambitious target to end AIDS as a public health threat by 2030. Well, UNAIDS, the United Nations agency dedicated to tackling HIV, and the organisation who set that goal, believes that the criminalisation of HIV is a key barrier to reaching that target. It says that laws which criminalise transmission or exposure to HIV undermine, rather than support, efforts to prevent new HIV infections. Cases like James's, well, they shouldn't be prosecuted, they say. But changing a country's criminal justice system isn't an easy mission. I'm Ashley Furlong, a healthcare reporter at Politico, and this is the second episode in our EU Confidential In Focus series. We're investigating how HIV criminalisation can devastate lives and what's being done to change that. Right, 
we're on our way to a small town in the English countryside. It's another beautiful day. There's not a breath of wind in the air. We're here not to go for a pint at a quaint local pub or walk in the countryside, but to speak to someone who knows about HIV criminalization better than most. He was at the center of one of these cases, and he's going to tell us how the case affected him then and now, still several years later. James, that's not his real name, by the way. We've granted him anonymity to speak openly about this case. Is waiting patiently at the station to meet me, my producer Peter, and Joe from the National AIDS Trust, who is accompanying us on the interview. It's not exactly conventional for your interviewee to pick you up and drive you to your interview location. But James, well, he's overly hospitable like that. He isn't originally from the UK, but proudly shows off his adopted hometown as we drive through its leafy streets. He's warm and friendly at ease with a car full of strangers. When we arrive at the community hall where we're doing the interview, he's arranged several bottles of chilled water and even bought a six-pack of Sprite and another of Fanta. But beneath his relaxed and likeable persona, you can also see he's really nervous. He's never spoken publicly about the case that upended his life. He had to leave his job and his reputation is irreparably damaged. It's traumatic for him. I wouldn't wish anyone, anyone, what I went through or what I am going through at the moment. It all started in 2013 when the police called James. He was at work and couldn't answer his phone. When he got hold of the officer, he found out that his former partner had made an allegation against him and he needed to go to the police station to speak to some officers. At the station, their questions were generic, James said. Do you know this person? Are you aware of HIV? So I gave them everything that I believed was true and everything that I knew. And uh, I remember at that time they did ask me if I wanted a lawyer, but to me, I didn't see anything that I had done wrong. And I said, I don't see there's any necessity of a lawyer. I'll just tell you what I know to be true. It was only when he got home that he realised the enormity of what had just happened. But that was it. Nothing much happened until 2015, when an email arrived. This time, he was informed that the Crown Prosecution Service was charging him. He was being prosecuted under 19th century law, the 1861 Offences Against the Person Act. He was being charged with grievous bodily harm for reckless transmission of HIV. Under the law in England and Wales, an accusation of reckless transmission means that the transmission wasn't intentional. But precautions, things such as disclosing your status or using a condom weren't used. There's another law that is used for cases of intentional transmission. Those cases are exceedingly rare, and organisations like UNAIDS agree criminal law should apply to these exceptional cases. It was a difficult time. It was very harrowing. It was, you don't know where your life stands. I'd never been in jail. I'd never been in a police cell. His life as he knew it imploded, and things were only going to get worse. After the first time he went to court, the media got wind of the case 
and that's when the first article appeared online. Then his phone started to ring, and it didn't stop. I tell you, I got calls from all over the world. It calls from Australia, it calls from New Zealand, it calls from my family back home, it calls from colleagues, it calls from my former students, it calls from every, to the point that I actually switched off my phone. Your call has been forwarded to an automatic voice and, message system. Um, deactivated all my social media and everything because messages were coming left, right and centre and I didn't know what to tell them. Ultimately, he quit his job. Isolated, the only real support he had for the next few years was his new partner and the National AIDS Trust, who helped him to find a lawyer and advised him on his rights. It was the most terrifying waiting game. Would the Crown Prosecution Service go ahead with the case? In 2018, three years later, he had his answer. The Crown Prosecution Service didn't have sufficient evidence and dropped the case. But the news, it didn't make him happy. Instead, James was angry. I tell you what, there's no joy that goes with that. No, there's no way I would recover my reputation. There is no way my name was out there in Google, on Google. I, my life had been suspended for five years. So when I heard the news, it made me more angry, actually, and say, why did this not come earlier? Why did they, they wait so long to then come back to me and say, we are dropping the case today? What has changed now? Nothing. James wants to sit down with the Crown Prosecution Service and get answers to these questions. He'd also like to know whether his race played a part in how he was treated. Do you think if you were a white British woman, it would have been the same? No. It would have been different. Definitely. A black African guy is bound to be doing something. That's the perception. No. (laughs) You can't paint everybody with the same brush. We approached the Crown Prosecution Service without revealing James's identity, so they couldn't answer specific questions around his case. However, a CPS spokesperson said that every victim, witness and defendant should expect the same standard of care, attention and decision-making in their case. They also pointed us towards their code for Crown Prosecutors, which includes guidance around race. A spokesperson told me that The decision to charge is based on the specific facts of every case following an investigation by the police and the CPS will only charge and proceed with a prosecution when our legal test has been met. As for delays in cases, the CPS explained that reasons for delays are multifaceted and could come from other parts of the criminal justice system, including the police, the court or the defence. While James is still distressed about many aspects of his ordeal, including the fact that his name was released to the media, he also doesn't think that HIV transmission should never be prosecuted. There may be some that can be prosecuted, yes. I don't wish anyone in my situation. I don't want anyone to be in my situation. And I would never ever want to transmit the same thing to anyone, no. But there are some other people who don't care who can just go and infect other people. Of course, those should be prosecuted. 
I'm wondering how it changed your perception of the UK at all, if it did, if you felt any differently about the country that you've made home. Definitely. Definitely. I just feel I'm a second-class citizen. We'll be right back. A message from Gilead. Gilead pledges to keep innovating beyond an undetectable viral load and to help support long-term success in HIV care, notably striving for lifelong health and quality of life for people living with HIV. This is our promise and our contribution to the cause. However, medical innovation alone is not enough. It requires collaboration, political commitment, and a shared vision. We must bring together governments, EU institutions, researchers, healthcare providers, industry, civil society organizations, and affected communities to harness the power of innovation. And we need help supporting policies both at EU and national level. Together, we can end the epidemic for everyone, everywhere. There is now a danger that has become a threat to us all. It is a deadly disease and there is no known cure. The virus can be passed during sexual intercourse with an infected person. Anyone can get it, man or woman. So far it's been confined to small groups, but it's spreading. So protect yourself and read this leaflet when it arrives. If you ignore AIDS, it could be the death of you. So don't die of ignorance. This is the iconic HIV advert from the 80s that shocked and woke up Britain. But it's been over 30 years since it was broadcast, and times have changed. HIV is no longer a ticket to an early death. Now, HIV is treated like many other chronic illnesses. To get here... It hasn't been easy. There have been monumental scientific advances, but perhaps more consequential has been the work to tackle the stigma around HIV. Here's Nelson Mandela. The only way of making it appear to be a normal illness, just like TB, uh, like cancer, is always uh, to come out and to say somebody has, has died because of uh, uh, HIV. And people will stop regarding it as something extraordinary. Activists who become household names like Larry Kramer, Marsha Johnson, Annie Lennox, Zaki Ahmad and countless others whose names won't go down in the history books, have dedicated their lives to telling their communities and the world that HIV isn't a disease to be ashamed of. It isn't dirty. It doesn't make you untouchable. That work to take away the shame around HIV has in part succeeded. But the criminalization of HIV, courts turning it into an illegal offense, is one of the last bastions of stigma. And this time, that army of activists campaigning for change? Well, they aren't quite as vocal when it comes to criminalization. 
I think a lot of people imagine that HIV criminalization, that the people get caught up in these cases are exceptional, that they're bad people, that they also give people living with HIV a bad name. And as someone living with HIV, it was something I struggled with to begin with when I first heard about HIV criminalization. This is Edwin Bernard, a man who has made tackling HIV criminalization his life's work. It all started in 2003, when the first successful prosecution for HIV transmission occurred in England. Only by talking to defendants and complainants in the early cases, as well as academics, did he realise what was happening. The people who get caught up in HIV criminalisation cases are just ordinary people living with HIV. They haven't done anything that's, that most people would or wouldn't do. There are many reasons why it's not possible for us to disclose our HIV status or to always find a way to protect our partner because of the fear of once that person knows our HIV status, they can use it against us. Moral arguments aside, there's evidence that using criminal law to prosecute these cases doesn't reduce HIV. In fact, it might do the opposite. Studies have shown that HIV criminalisation could make people less likely to seek testing or HIV health services. Criminalisation is that ultimate manifestation of stigma when the politicians or the criminal legal system enshrine into law people living with HIV should be treated, are treated differently because of our HIV status. What started out as a blog for Edwin morphed into the HIV Justice Network, a website that meticulously maps cases of HIV criminalisation, works to tackle inaccurate media reporting and does advocacy work to try and end those prosecutions. Prosecutions for HIV transmission aren't exactly common, but in the three years between January 2019 and December 2021, it's estimated that there were almost 700 cases brought before courts all over the world. 82 countries have specific laws to criminalise HIV transmission, exposure or non-disclosure. 48 others have applied existing laws to prosecute people in these situations. In those three years, there were at least 10 criminal cases in Britain, 11 in France, 77 in the US and over 230 in Uzbekistan. Edwin has seen how the landscape has changed over the last 10 years. And that's partly to do with the science that has advanced in leaps and bounds. We've actually seen quite a reduction in the number of, of prosecutions. And a lot of that is due to the recognition or the increasing recognition around up-to-date science. So a lot of cases, particularly in Europe, have been prevented, or rather there's been this recognition that, that uh, people on effective antiretroviral therapy are no longer infectious. And many cases, although the many cases continue, many cases have actually been stopped because it was recognised during the investigation period that, in fact, this person could not have transmitted HIV, could not have exposed someone to HIV. But the saying that the wheels of justice turn slowly couldn't be more true when it comes to HIV criminalisation. The problem is, of course, the law tends to look backwards. And science, HIV, and everything that we know about it is moving at a very fast pace. And so there's this mismatch between what we know about 
risk and harm and proof around HIV and what the courts have ruled. Edwin is now 60 years old. He says that when he retires one day, he hopes the organisation doesn't need to exist. But he knows that might be wishful thinking. So much more needs to be done to end the stigma around HIV. But the mere fact that he's even talking about retirement is a success in itself. When I was first diagnosed, I never imagined I'd live beyond 40. And, you know, here I am thinking about you know, retirement at some point in the, near, in the relatively near future. So I would hope that more countries that understand that punitive responses, not just to HIV, but to any communicable disease or any sexually transmitted infection, is the wrong way to go. We're here outside the National AIDS Trust in Bethnal Green, which is a vibrant East London neighbourhood. It's one of those sweltering hot days in London that you only get a couple of times a year. Um, and we're here to talk to Kath Smithson. She's been at the National AIDS Trust for uh, nearly 10 years now, and she's one of the experts in HIV criminalisation in the UK. And she's hopefully going to tell us a bit more about the situation in the UK and why HIV transmission is being prosecuted and potentially why things might be changing. Let's head inside. I'm Kat Smithson and I'm from the National AIDS Trust. Kat has seen what HIV criminalisation does to people at the centre of cases firsthand. She's worked with James, as well as many others, helping them navigate the complexities of the criminal justice system. Part of her job at the National AIDS Trust is to speak to both the police and the Crown Prosecution Service. She tries to help these institutions understand the wider public health implications of prosecutions. But the cases have become somewhat of a vicious cycle. Previous successful prosecutions for reckless HIV transmission in England and Wales have helped establish case law, setting precedents for future prosecutions. There is a significant question as to whether the criminal law is the appropriate way to deal with those situations or whether we should be doing better in our public health efforts in general to support people and make sure that we can ensure that people know their HIV status and are accessing that treatment. Well, Kat already has the answer to that question. Criminalisation, particularly around reckless HIV transmission, really does undermine pretty much everything we know about effective public health approaches to HIV, which are really, really focused on thinking about shared responsibility for sexual health, knowing your status, talking to your partners openly about sexual health, destigmatizing HIV, not treating people living with HIV as if they are a threat or a danger. While HIV criminalisation has been tested in court, what hasn't been tested is whether or not HIV should even be considered grievous bodily harm. Kat says it's something that's really difficult to even talk about. What we are not saying is that HIV doesn't matter and doesn't have an impact on people's lives. It does. It has a huge impact on people's lives. It's a lifelong condition. 
And um, we work incredibly hard as an organisation, a community, to prevent more people from acquiring HIV. But at the same time, we have to be really clear about what it isn't. And it isn't a death sentence. And there's a lot of people that live really long, healthy, happy lives with HIV and actually find it incredibly stigmatising to see media reports and to see quotes from the police and from others saying that someone's life has been destroyed by an HIV diagnosis, because that's just not how a lot of people or the vast majority of people feel. There are other possible ways to prevent more situations like James's. One is working to review the 19th century law that's used to prosecute these cases. Another option is to push for a wider public health conversation, where government and parliamentarians engage in the debate. But there are risks to this approach. The most intimate part of HIV-positive people's lives will be up for public debate, and some politicians or officials will be opposed to any change to how HIV transmission is prosecuted. In fact, they may well push for harsher sentences. I think there's definitely a nervousness about raising it in some forums where you might actually cause more harm than good. That's not to say the years of campaigning by Kat and others like her have been unsuccessful. Just a few months ago, in March 2023, they had a significant win. The Crown Prosecution Service updated its guidance on intentional or reckless sexual transmission of infection. The new guidance makes clear that if someone is on effective HIV treatment, they can't transmit the virus. That's because science has proven that if someone is on HIV antiretrovirals, the amount of virus in their system can become undetectable, making it practically impossible to pass HIV on and ending any prospect of prosecution. But to James, there's still a lot of room for change. They need to know how if they don't take these processes seriously or if they don't do it properly, how it will impact someone at the end. They can't give back my reputation now. I have to rebuild my reputation. I've been to uni, I've been to, and that case has been lingering on my head every day. Imagine, would you wish your brother that? Your sister? Would anyone in this room wish their brother or their sister to go through that? Or yourself, would you go through that? How would you navigate that? I'm Ashley Furlong. Thank you for listening. Next week, you'll be hearing our final episode of the series, looking at whether Europe will ever find a cure for HIV. This episode was recorded and produced by Peter Snowden, Christina Gonzalez and me, Ashley Furlong. It was edited by Joanna Roberts. Special thanks to Sarah Tessier Ben-Sharif and the staff at the National AIDS Trust and James 